All right, friends, uh, please pray with me as we come to listen to the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we can gather together as your people. We thank you for the beautiful day, uh, for the joy in particular of fellowship together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that you speak. We thank you for the gift of your spirit and for your word that gives us life and hope. And Father, we pray this morning that as you speak, that you would help us to hear and to listen and obey, that we might know you and that we might live in a way that proclaims the life that we know in Christ. And Father, we ask it for his sake. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, my father-in-law worked for much of his life as a car salesman. Uh, And he was very fond of a little reworking of that old Seven Dwarfs hit, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. It it kind of expressed reality for him. Uh, I think he basically worked because he had to, although there were moments when he really enjoyed his job. Uh, Work is one of those kind of love-hate things for us, right? Uh, It's important, we know we have to do it, we need to do it to survive, but it's not always pleasant. And in fact, quite often, it results for many of us, at least certain times in our lives, in a kind of dreary resignation. I know that I'm supposed to do this. I know that I don't have many other options, so I'll go and do what I do. Now, in some ways, I think that kind of represents uh, an idea of work or a thinking about work that's part of our society and is prevalent in our world. But it's not the only view of work that exists in the world in which we live. You see, on the flip side of the coin, there are those who have kind of gone, well, I don't want work to be like that. And so work becomes the place where I invest myself in order to get my meaning and my significance and my sense of status and well-being in the world. We have made our work into career, into our life's goal and opportunity. It's the thing that we live for. Now, it seems to me as I think about it, the reason that on the one hand you have dreary resignation or on the other hand it is my life's goal is because work takes up an inordinately large amount of our lives. Um, Because I'm that kind of guy, I kind of sat down and did some statistics for you. Um, According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the average Australian works 42 hours a week. Now, if there are 168 hours in the week, and you need to kind of sleep at least six hours a night, then the average Australian spends something like uh, 32%, 33% of their life at work. Now, I found another report from 2005 which suggested in Sydney, the average worker also spends almost five hours of their week just getting to work and back home from work. And that's if you're lucky, right? Maybe it's more like 10 Uh, And maybe you work a lot more than 42 hours a week. I'm suspecting that for many of you in this room, that's a reality. And all of a sudden, those numbers bump from kind of 35% up to 45%. Oh, and by the way, if you have to sleep more than six hours a night, bad luck because a greater percentage of your waking life gets spent at work. But I would guess for most of us, work takes up somewhere between 40 and maybe 60% of our waking hours. And that's a lot of life, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot of life that gets spent around this thing. And so we really need to kind of stop and keep reflecting on what is work, 
What does God want our work to be? And how do we think about it and live Christianly in the context of doing our work? And my aim with you this weekend is really to think a little bit about kind of the big biblical picture of what God has to say about work and how we can apply that as people trying to live and work as Christians in our worlds. Now before I start, uh, I want to say a couple of things up front. The first thing is that because work engages so much of our life and we spend so much of our time doing it, Many of us have come from families and from histories and from cultures which already have taught us a lot of things about work. There are a lot of ideas in our head and we're often emotionally committed to those ideas about our work. And what I want to say is if we're going to read the Bible, God tells me to expect to be encouraged but to expect also to be rebuked occasionally. So I'm going to presume that as we open the scriptures across the course of this weekend, God is going to say some things that are going to make us feel uncomfortable or may challenge cherished ideas or notions about what work is. And so we really need to stop and ask God, don't we, to to work in us that we might actually listen to him rather than just hanging on to the ideas that we love about work. The second thing that I want to say is that um, as with anything, This weekend is such a condensed version of what could possibly be said about work. Um, I I spent my final year at Moore College uh, writing uh, a thesis on the subject of work. And I spent hours and I read dozens of books on the subject. And so there are lots and lots of things that could be said. What I'm trying to do is to kind of pick up the big themes from the Bible in the storyline from Genesis at one end to Revelation at the other and try and put them together And for that reason, there's every chance that I'm going to distort some things across the weekend. So I want you to keep asking me questions and to be reading the Bible for yourself. There's actually going to be a question box that's set up over there beside the door. If you have questions, if you want to say, Grimo, I think what you've said is wrong, um, whatever you want to say, put those things in the box over there and we'll try and engage with those thoughts and deal with them when we get to question time tomorrow morning. Okay. Uh, But before we do anything else, I want to pray again and just ask for God to help us to be willing to hear what he has to say rather than what we would like him to say. So will you pray that with me? Our Father God, we thank you uh, that you speak for our good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us when we think about this thing, which is such a big part of our lives, to be willing to listen to what you say. Lord, if you have words to speak that will rebuke us this weekend... Help us to hear them and be willing to change. Grant us by your spirit the ability to be able to respond well to you, knowing that your word is our life. And Father, we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, now, before we start, it's always important to kind of define your topic a little bit, isn't it? But it's not an easy question to answer, what is work or how do you define work? It's such an an obvious thing that you kind of know it when you see it, but when you stop and think about it, it's difficult. Uh, I'm going to put some pictures up on uh, the screen behind me. We're going to have a little think about what work is. Um, I'm hoping that this is kind of going to work and there we go. Okay, so you guys can kind of see that all right. They're working, right? There's every sign of work there. They're there. They're, They're intense. They're concentrating. They're working, except that he's sitting in his suit in the office and she's sitting kind of at a lounge chair in her home. So is work something that you do in a particular place or is it just something that you do when you invest your energy? Now, 
it's kind of obvious that those people are working, right? We're used to thinking of that as work. Things that involve manual labour must be work. But what about this guy? I mean, is that real work? Can you call that a real job when you get to go and kind of sit out in the countryside and look through your little telescope and kind of, does that make real work? And what about this woman? Sorry, what about... Well, she's too young to be really working. Does, Does your age come into it? Do you start working when you get to the end of high school or do you just work because you're working? She's far too happy to be at work. (laughs) And so uh, you couldn't possibly call what she is doing work. This is certainly work, although the only photo I could find of it was much neater than any of that kind of work that I've ever seen in my life. But she doesn't get paid for it. So is it work if you're not getting some sort of remuneration? And now what about these? Now, that's not work, right? But those guys get paid to do that. So are they working or aren't they working? If I go and knock the football around in the park with my sons, I'm not working. But they are working. If I drive my car out to the conference this weekend, nobody tells me that I'm working, but he gets to do it for a job. So what makes... Work, work. It's a funny kind of thing, isn't it? You know work when you see it, but it's hard to define it. It's not about being paid. It's not particularly defined by what age you are. And it's not even defined by the nature of the thing that you do. You can do all sorts of things, and one person's work can be another person's leisure. And so as you come to think about work, where do you start? How do you think about it? And I want to say to you, as Christians, we want to not just define it by in terms of what our world thinks or in terms of just our instant reaction. We want to ask, what did God create work to be? What was God's intention when he made work in the first place? Now, in order to do that, uh, what we're going to do over the course of the weekend, today I'm going to look mainly at the Old Testament and have a look at some ideas in the Old Testament about work. And then in the second talk today, we're going to look at the New Testament and what Jesus does to work and how he transforms and changes it. And then tomorrow we're going to think more through some implications of that for how we live and work together as a group of God's people. Uh, But let's start where God starts, way back in the beginning. And if you have your Bible there, you might want to open it up. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. All right, and we're going to ask the question, what does God think about work? Why did God create work and what was work's purpose in the beginning? Now, we've just read Genesis chapter 2, but Genesis chapter 2, if you like, is the close-up uh, shot that happens. You know at the start of a movie you have the massive wide angle lens shot and the plane comes swooping over the hill and you see the scenery kind of fly past you and you get to see everything. It sets a context and a picture and in the next scene you cut up close and you start to see the people and the action. Genesis 1 is the big picture and Genesis 2 is the action. But let's start in Genesis chapter 1. What did God make human beings to do? Genesis chapter 1 uh, and let's pick it up at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Two key points here, very simple kind of basic things. Human beings are made in the image of God. And we're made in the image of God for a particular purpose. And our purpose is to rule over the creation that God has made. We are to subdue the creation and act in creation on God's behalf. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. Now, as we go on in the scriptures, we'll see that part of that is actually seeking under God for the creation to bring glory and honour to our Lord. But in the opening section here... We're told that humanity's goal, our destiny, our aim in life is to rule the world and to subdue the world that God has made. Now, as you take that kind of wide-angle perspective and you move in and you get the close-up action, what do you see God actually tells Adam to do in the garden? Well, when you flip over to chapter 2, verse 15, we're told these words, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. In the big picture of of God's creation, as God says, I have made humanity to rule, he picks up mankind and he places humanity in the garden and he says, your job is to work in the creation and to rule it on my behalf. That is, what is work Work is primarily and fundamentally our role and goal as humans in God's creation. It is to act in God's creation on God's behalf in order to subdue the creation under his rule. Now, what exactly that looks like for us, we're going to need to think a little bit more about, but that's kind of fundamentally what it is. Now, it's worth noticing in passing that God actually promises, it seems to me, blessing that is associated with this function of ruling and subduing right from the very beginning. So go jump back with me again to chapter 1 and verse 28. <clears throat> God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. As we act in creation to rule over it, God's blessing will come from it. We'll work and we'll eat and we'll enjoy what we eat. And, and so if you were to kind of summarise Genesis 1 and 2, work is a gift from God. It is, it is the exercise of our role and goal in creation to have dominion over creation on behalf of God because we're made in God's image. And as we do it, God will supply our needs. We will eat, we will enjoy, we will rejoice in the creation that God has made. Now, as you sit there and read that, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Well, the first thing that leaps into my mind is, but, surely it's but, right? That is not what my life is like. That, God can tell me whatever he likes about the world, but that's not what my life is. I mean, I try to work, and it's very hit and miss, even at the level of growing food. We live in a very small plot of the eastern suburbs, and we have an even smaller plot in the backyard, which we use as our vegetable garden. And um, we love trying to grow vegetables, right? 
Uh, it's fantastic trying to grow them, but really it's very hit and miss. Can I give you some tips? Cherry tomatoes are dead easy to grow and you actually get a crop at the end of the day and that's wonderful. It feels like I've achieved something. I, I, can, I can subdue the creation. <laughs> but the problem is pretty much everything else that I plant doesn't work. Carrots. Carrots are really bad news. We've tried carrots. They ended up being about that big. We tried really hard. We watered and we did all the things, but they just didn't grow very big. We've got this fantastic lemon tree in our back garden. It's just that three quarters of the times you cut the lemon open and there's nothing. It's like there's wood inside the lemon. <clears throat> and so I'm trying, right? I'm trying very hard to subdue the creation, but it's not working. And the reason is, of course, that that picture of creation and of humanity's goal and aim in creation is a picture of the world as God created it, but it's not the picture of the world as it is now because of sinfulness. Now, we live in a world that wants to look out on the world and give you all sorts of reasons for why the world's such a hard place to live. But the Bible says basically it's because of human rebellion. God gave us everything. And he said, there's just one tree that you shouldn't eat from. I mean, that's a lot of trees, right? There's mangoes and there's peaches. There's wonderful things, but there's one tree that you're not allowed to eat from. And the nature of the human heart is to long for the one thing that you can't have. And Satan comes along and whispers in our ear and he says, you know what, God's holding out on you. The God who made the world, he doesn't want what's best for you. There's just one more thing and you can pluck it and have it. You can be like a God. You can put yourself in God's place. You can control your own world. And of course we take it. The fruit is good to the eye and it's great to taste at least in the moment that you first bite into it. And yet because of our choice to reject the God who's the source of everything good in the world, the result is that work, which was supposed to be a sweet and pleasant experience, becomes tainted and frustrated and difficult. And so Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam, because of sin, death comes into the world, but because of sin... Your work is painful. The soil will produce its fruit. You will still eat. There will still be something that comes from your work, but it will be frustrated and difficult. And at the same moment as it produces fruit, it will also produce thorns and thistles. Your work will be a spiky place. It's a prickly place. It's an uncomfortable place to be. Our rebellion against God results in a creation that will not yield to our hand and work while it kind of will provide, will also be unpleasant. And it seems to me that that picture of blessing and frustration becomes the picture that occupies the entire rest of the Old Testament. 
The rest of the Old Testament is, if you like, a little bit like the news stories that used to appear on my local television station up in Lismore on the north coast where I grew up. Lismore is a very funny part of the world. Uh, it's about 30 minutes drive from Nimbin and it's about 40 minutes away from Byron Bay. So it's kind of the counterculture capital of Australia. And yet when I grew up there, it was actually a staunchly National Party voting place. We had a sitting country party member for the previous 20 years. So there's this incredible mix of incredible conservatism and kind of out-and-out kind of rebellion and counterculture. It was also, at least when I was growing up there, the home of Australia, one of Australia's highest rates of unemployment. And so the local news station would periodically run stories on the unemployment situation around Lismore. And invariably, there would be two interviews that went on. And one would be with the local country party politician who would say something along the lines of, work is a good thing, and if you work hard, you'll go a long way in this world, son. And then they would cut to the bloke who was getting out of his combi with his board under his arm and who would say something like, oh, man, the waves are pumping and life's too short. And who wants to work anyway? And as you work your way through the Old Testament, it's like they took the country party politician and the Byron Bay surfer and they whacked them together in your Bible and you keep getting these two opposing views of work. So what I want to do just for the rest of this talk is to give you five kind of different pictures, little, little glimpses, if you like, of work in the Old Testament as a result of this kind of goodness and yet frustration. The first thing I want to say is that in spite of the fall, work in the Old Testament is still seen as obedience. Do you remember the fourth commandment, the commandment to rest, the commandment to have a Sabbath, actually assumes that you will rest because most of your life is about work. Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you or the people who live with you. Work is part of obedience for God's people. As they come into the promised land, God tells them, you shall labour for six days a week. Work is still part of what it means to live as God's people in the world. And because it's about living as God's people in the world, the way that you work matters. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 13 to 16. Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Don't have two differing measures in your house, one large and one small. Have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land your Lord God is giving you. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. As you work, not only do you labour, but you labour honestly in relationship with other people. And so even, if I can put it like this, the labour market is to be regulated by being one of God's people. Deuteronomy 24, don't take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns, pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and he is counting on it. I'm sorry about that. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. You see, work is still the way in which somebody eats. He is counting on his wages. He is counting on the grain or the food at the end of the day so that he can make his living and function and survive in the world. And so despite the effect of sin in the world, work is still a good thing. It's a place of obedience. It's a right thing. And it is going to provide for us to some extent or another. And so the, 
The Old Testament can even go further than that and make some almost outlandish statements, it feels to us, about the nature of work. Take the Proverbs. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. In modern day terms, it's the country party politician's view of work. Work hard and you will go a long way. Labour diligently and you will reap the fruits of your labour. Life will be good if you do what you're supposed to do. Although the Old Testament carries a little rider, a little caveat that most of our politicians don't put in place. And that is, as much as you labour, the result of your labour is not just the result of your work, but it is actually the gift of God and God may give you the result of your hand's work. Proverbs 16.9, In his heart a man plants his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails, 19.21. You can try hard to work, but you won't necessarily achieve what you set out to achieve. And if you do, it is because God has been kind enough to give you the fruits that you've worked for. It is God who grants success. And so comes God's warning as the people walk into the promised land. Remember the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 8.18, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. God even says, everything that you have comes from my hand. And it may be good, it may even be very good, But the danger is, and God has to warn his people of it, that as good as it can be, work is not actually our goal or our aim or the sum total of our existence as human beings. And so as much as the Old Testament says work hard and obey God and be diligent and enjoy the fruit of your hands, it also turns around and says, firstly, do you know ultimately we're not living for work but we're living for rest. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12. God tells his people, even living in the promised land, once a week observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. There's something good about rest. And as human beings, work is not our end. And indeed, there's almost the word here against here isn't there you actually resting at the expense of others as well see who rests it's not just you who rests on the sabbath day but your slaves rest and your animals rest everything that sits under your control rests Um, which is kind of a word that our work culture needs to hear doesn't it it is actually possible if you're clever and in the right place to run a business that relies on people not getting rest in order for you to be able to enjoy yours. 
But the scriptures say work is not the end goal for any of us. And we're actually not just as individuals, but as a community to work towards people actually having the opportunity to rest as well as to labour and work. But as much as rest is the goal and a reminder of the goodness of God, nevertheless, six days you shall labour and one day you shall rest. And the six days of labour, because of the nature of sin, means that work becomes profoundly frustrated. Now, Ecclesiastes, after Romans, is probably my second favourite book in the Bible. And um, it's one of those dreary but important books. Um, I love it because it kind of suits my melancholy personality. But um, you should read it occasionally because it's a great reminder about the nature of the frustrated world in which we live. Uh, If you remember... The writer of Ecclesiastes sits out and he says, what's good to do under the sun? What's worth spend, What would you spend your life doing in order to bring you fulfilment and joy and pleasure and happiness and fun? And he's in a position where, fortunately, he gets to try it all. Uh, in modern terms, he goes to university for a while. He goes shopping. He tries gardening. He even has a fling with several of his concubines. And at the end of it, all he's got to say is basically this. I hated life because the work that he's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he'll have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. Now, meaningless, friends, it's, it's a bit too strong of a word. The word actually means breath or vanity. It's something that just appears and then disappears. Excellent. Our brother has taught you well. The problem with work is not that it does nothing. It's just that there is no ultimate gain. There's no profit. There's nothing that you can grab and hold on to and it stays. So you get it. And then it disappears. It's like trying to grab your breath on a cold winter's morning. You can see it, but you can't hold it. And work is like that. You work and you labour and you work and you labour and you try to get yourself in a position where you're kind of comfortable and secure, but things can change. You can have a global financial crisis and all of a sudden the thing that was secure and is uphold has disappeared. And the fruits of your labour come and go. It's good and you eat it and you enjoy it and then you have to clean the toilet. That's, that's the nature of stuff. And so the Byron Bay surfer comes to mind, man, life is too short, right? Why, why bother spending your life doing this when you can go out and catch the waves? Except the problem of Ecclesiastes is even when you go out and catch the waves day by day, the waves only do so much for you as well. But the biggest problem with sin is not just that it makes work frustrating and disappointing and difficult and you can't actually get any real lasting profit. The ultimate problem is that work becomes another God. You see, what does work become for sinful human beings? It becomes a way of manufacturing gods apart from the God who created and made you and gives you life and breath. 
The Tower of Babel was just such an expression of human labour. I will make my name on my own apart from the God who made me. And we do it in all sorts of ways. So I just want you to flick with me one last reading. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 44 with me for a moment. Isaiah 44. It's a wonderful little section that reminds us of the folly of idolatry. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind, they're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He rusts it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire and over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god. He's idle, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? It's not a problem for us, is it? My problem is that every time I think of idolatry, I think of East Lakes Shopping Centre. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you, but at our local kind of little kind of uh, shopping centre, there's actually a part of the shopping centre where there's this great kind of statue set up in the middle of the shopping centre. And in fact, um, it's been the source of some family conflict. We, my, my parents took the kids along there occasionally when they were small, and one day one of my kids said, that's an idol, and that's stupid that people kind of bow down to pray to it. And neither of my parents were Christian at that point in time, so that was kind of an interesting moment in family life. <laughs> But actually, my kids were right and they could see for what it is. It's a lump of metal sitting in the middle of a local shopping centre. And actually nobody's even kind of set the task of polishing or anything, so it's a slightly dingy lump of metal sitting in my local shopping centre. But I think idolatry and I think of that and I think, hey, that's not my problem. I'm not tempted to go and bow down to that big gold statue sitting in the middle of my shopping centre. That's not my issue. And yet the scriptures tell me that I keep making idols. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 is a very important verse for us, friends. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You see, we don't labour to make something that we can bow down to, but we labour to make something that we give our lives to. Why does our world work so hard? And why do Australians in particular work harder than almost the rest of the world? See, it's funny, isn't it? You think Australia, you think laid back, casual, I go off to the beach, I enjoy my weekends, etc., etc., etc. Actually, out of all of the OECD countries, so this is the kind of top echelon of productivity and worldly wealth, we are second only to Japan in terms of the percentage of Australians who work over 50 hours a week. 20% of our population work over 50 hours a week. We love work. We are a nation of workers. According to the statistics, we are also second in the OECD countries in terms of the percentage of our population who regularly work weekends. 30% of the Australian working population regularly works on the weekend on a Saturday or a Sunday. Tomorrow, on Sunday, 27% of our population will be at work in some form or another. More people will work tomorrow than will join in gathering together with God's people to hear God's work and to sing his praises and to speak to one another about life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We work and we work and we work and we work and we work because what we produce, we think, provides us with security and safety and joy and leisure. And it is actually the thing that we work for. We bow down and we give our lives to the fruit of our hands. And I want to say that I think as Christian churches, I'm not sure that we're a whole lot different from the world around about us at this particular point. It seems to me that wherever I go, and as I talk to people who believe in the Lord Jesus, work takes this place and it becomes this thing in which is invested everything that we are. It is where I find my status and significance and meaning and importance. And that is not an expression of godly obedience. It's actually an expression of sinful rebellion. However much it's been glossy coated and given a nice kind of iPad finish for the 21st century. Now we need to go on and we need to think more about what Jesus has to say about work. But we're just going to stop here and remind ourselves of what we've seen. Work is actually the gift of God to us. And its ultimate purpose is that the creation may sit under the lordship of God and that we may honour him as we work well in the world. And in God's kindness as we work, we will eat, we will live, we'll be able to rejoice and enjoy the creation God has made. But in a fallen and broken world, work will always be frustrated it will be annoying and difficult and it will not deliver what you want it to deliver. And there is always the temptation that work will become an expression of our disobedience. 
And friends, the challenge for us as we finish from the Old Testament is just to stop and think about that. One of the questions that I want you to ask over the course of this weekend is, has work become an idol for me? I don't actually want you to ask the question for anybody else sitting in the room. I don't care about the person who's two seats along for you. And I don't care if you can point to the person who's sitting down the front or up the back or in the middle who you think, gee, they really need to hear this word. That's not the point. What God wants to say is, has work become your idol? Do you live for work? Is it where you find your significance and fulfilment and life? I'm going to pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word which tells us clearly about what life is about. And Father, as we look on our world, we do groan in agony at the frustration of our broken world. Father, we all know that just bizarre experience of life where work is sometimes good and sometimes profoundly frustrating. Father, we long for things to be better. And we're tempted to achieve it by the work of our own hands. Lord, we pray, please, that you would help us as people to remember that work is for our good and it is for the purposes that you have set before us. Lord, for each and every one of us, we pray that you would help us to work out if work is an idol for us. And Father, if it is, we pray that you would help us to become people who would repent of that idolatry. Lord, above all, help us to look for our significance, our meaning, the goal of our lives and our purpose in serving and loving you. Father, we ask that you would do that in us for your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen.